This is Shakespeare on Bard, the podcast where I try to get you excited about Shakespeare one play at a time. Today, it's the last play Shakespeare ever wrote by himself. It's time for The Tempest. Good person, have care! Twelve years since, thy father was the Duke of Milan and a prince of power. All three of them are desperate. Their great guilt, like poison given to work a great time after. This is a strange maze as M. M. Tron. And there is in this business more than nature was ever conduct of. Seek for grace. What a Christ double ass was I to take the Miss Drunkard for a god. <laughs> oh, brave new world that has such people in it. All right, as always, we're going to start with a short summary. How short? Siri, set the timer for one minute. Setting. Okay, your timer is set for one minute. All is rotten on an abandoned island in the middle of the sea. The magician Prospero has raised a storm, causing a shipwreck that divides the king of Naples and his crew. The king and his counselors wash up on one part of the shore, Prince Ferdinand on another, and the two drunkards Stefano and Trinculo on a third. Along with his daughter Miranda, Prospero reveals that he is an exiled duke who was betrayed by his brother and that he's brought the king and his followers to the island to have his title restored. Prospero was aided by the spirit Ariel, who he once saved. Also on this island is Caliban, the son of a witch who lived on the island when Prospero arrived. Caliban teams up with Stefano and Trinculo to take over the island, while two of the king's followers team up to murder the king. Both plans fail, largely due to Prospero and Ariel. Meanwhile, Miranda falls in love with Ferdinand, and Prospero, after some minor objections, has allowed them to wed. Prospero unites all the shipwrecked people, reveals his identity, extracts an apology, frees Ariel, forgives Caliban, and prepares to return to Naples after breaking his magic staff and drowning his book of spells. Beloved among Shakespeare fans and high school teachers alike, The Tempest holds a regal place in the canon, mostly because of the popular belief that Prospero, the play's ostensible hero, is a stand-in for Shakespeare himself. There's a pleasing symmetry to the fact that Prospero drowns his book of spells in the fifth act right around the time that Shakespeare was in the fifth act of his own life. It's the last play that Shakespeare wrote on his own, and one can hardly hear the play's famed epilogue without imagining Shakespeare himself standing at the door with his hat and coat in hand. Now I want spirits to enforce, art to enchant, and my ending is despair, unless I be relieved by prayer, which pierces so that it assaults mercy itself and frees all faults. As you from crimes would pardon be, let your indulgence set me free. Who knows? Perhaps Shakespeare truly did intend for The Tempest to be his swan song. It's not quite the collection of greatest hits that we find in Cymbeline, but there are plenty of elements stolen from other plays. One can imagine the fate of Prospero and Miranda to be an alternate one for Duke Sr. and Rosalind from As You Like It. Both Prospero and Duke Sr. are victims of a scheming brother who exile them from court. The echoes of A Midsummer Night's Dream are clear, what with all those magic spells and supernatural entities running around, and this is hardly the first of Shakespeare's plays to open with a storm. All of that Sturm and Drang might as well be the one that separated Viola and Sebastian way, way back in Twelfth Night. We also have drunkards and clowns, pomp and spectacle, and of course, a pair of young lovers who fall in love at first sight. 
The Tempest doesn't have much of a plot, and is surprisingly undramatic. Since Prospero always has the upper hand, we never feel the villains are a true threat. No one's in any real danger, and so we're more or less watching a puppet master pull on his various strings. And yet, this is precisely the thing that gives The Tempest its singular spark of originality. Shakespeare was still in his final phase of writing, after all, and as we've seen elsewhere, he was injecting all of his work with a healthy dose of nihilism and despair. Prospero doesn't fall neatly into the prescribed role of a hero any more than Caliban does that of villain, which is why plenty of critics have been able to reverse the two when the mood has suited them. Indeed, it is now fashionable to consider Prospero as the usurping colonizer, while Ariel and Caliban are the natives who respond to their colonial overlord in different ways. Now, I don't think this was ever Shakespeare's intent, but that's hardly the point. The reason such interpretations continue to find adherence is because in The Tempest, the heroes and villains are not so obviously drawn. Caliban is a sympathetic terror, while Prospero is a corrupted hero, and it is this lack of clarity which makes Shakespeare's last romance a much more complicated play than its simple story might make it seem. Let's start with Prospero. There's no denying that he got dealt a bad hand. Usurped by his brother, he was forced to flee Milan and ended up stranded with his daughter on a deserted island. But this doesn't necessarily excuse Prospero for what he did next. Having been deposed and stripped of control, he lashed out by trying to control everything about the new world in which he found himself. Naturally, in his interpretation of events, he is nothing but a benefactor. Lest I forgot the foul witch, Sycorax, who with age and envy was grown into a hope, hast thou forgot her? No, sir. This blue-eyed hag was hither brought with child, and here was left by sailors thou, my slave, as thou reports thyself, wast then her servant, and, for thou wast a spirit too delicate to act her earthy and abhorred commands, refusing her grand hests, she did confine thee by help of her more potent ministers, and in her most unmitigable rage into a cloven pine, within which rift imprisoned thou didst painfully remain a dozen years, within which space she died and left thee there, where thou didst vent thy groans as fast as mill wheels strike. Then was this island, save for the sun that she did litter here, a freckled whelp hag-born, not honoured with a human shape. Yes, Caliban, her son. In Prospero's mind, he is the selfless hero, and yet to ours, his behaviour rarely helps anyone other than himself. For twelve years, Prospero has lorded over Caliban and Ariel. When the play begins, he has Ariel caused the titular tempest, endangering the lives of the ship's crew just to bring his brother to the island. When Ariel demands to be freed, the promised reward for helping Prospero, the cruel magician rejects his servant's plea. Prospero is as cruel to Ariel as he is to Miranda. Indeed, he proves himself time and again to be a terrible father. For 12 years, he has kept the truth about their past from his daughter, and in the very first scene, we see him cast a spell that puts Miranda to sleep. Now, if a modern-day father was to lie to his daughter for 12 years and then drug her tea, we might consider him a monster. So why should we celebrate Prospero, who assaults his daughter with magic? 
Now, later, we learn that Caliban attempted to rape Miranda so he could people the island with other Caliban's allies to help him overthrow Prospero. Caliban's behavior is indefensible, but why does Prospero keep Caliban as his slave? And more importantly, why does he force Miranda to remain in close proximity to the man who tried to assault her? At best, Prospero is insensitive to Miranda. At worst, he is purposely keeping Caliban nearby as a way of asserting his own authority. Now, this isn't the only time that Prospero's actions come with bad motivations. Later, once Ferdinand comes on the scene, Prospero conspires to keep him and Miranda apart, using one of the lousiest excuses in all of Shakespeare. Oh, if a virgin and your affection not gone forth, I'll make you the Queen of Naples. They are both in either's powers. But this swift business I must uneasy make, lest too light winning make the prize light. Prospero's cruelty is intensified in productions where the character is played by a woman, or rather as a woman, for now it is the mother who is showing a surprising lack of sympathy for the daughter to whom she gave birth. However, a female Prospero may be more justified in being wary of men, and there's a certain extra resonance to the warning given to Ferdinand after the prince has won Miranda's hand. Then, as my gift and thine own acquisition worthily purchased, take my daughter. But if thou dost break her virgin, not before all sanctimonious ceremonies may with full and holy rite be ministered, no sweet aspersion shall the heavens let fall to make this contract grow. But barren hate, sour-eyed disdain and discord shall bestrew the union of your bed with weeds so loathly that you shall hate it both. But in the end, whether played by a man or a woman, Prospero isn't the best of parents and rules like a capricious tyrant, which makes one wonder whether Antonio was right to take over Milan. After all, if this is how Prospero rules the abandoned island, what sort of duke was he when he was back on the mainland. However, Shakespeare also suggests other possibilities for Prospero's character. Perhaps it's his exile which has turned him cruel, and the events of the play are what help Prospero rediscover who he once was. Prospero does soften as the play progresses. When he spies on Ferdinand and Miranda's courtship, he comes to pity them, and in the very next scene, he is offering Ferdinand his daughter's hand in marriage. Confronting his brother at the end of the play, Prospero does not seek any revenge, but rather simply the chance to see his daughter wed and to be allowed to return home. Indeed, in one of his final speeches, he suggests that he is a man who has grown weary with life. Sir, I invite your highness and your train to my poor cell, where you shall take your rest for this one night, which part of it I'll waste with such discourse as... I not doubt shall make it go quick away. The story of my life and the particular accidents gone by since I came to this isle. And in the morn, I'll bring you to your ship, and so to Naples, where I have hoped to see the nuptial of these our dear beloved solemnized. And thence, retire me to my Milan, where every third thought shall be my grave. Prospero is the ringmaster, the master of illusion, and much like the playwright to whom he is so often compared, he spends the entire play manipulating the lives of the people around him. But it's very possible that he was driven to this by the injustices that were done to him, and so the play affords Prospero the opportunity to make amends for his cruelty. 
He finds Miranda a happy ending, he frees Ariel, and he leaves the island, presumably allowing Caliban to live on it however he sees fit. There is something of a tale of redemption in The Tempest, as we see Prospero find justice for himself, even as he atones for the mistakes he made after he was so wrongly punished. As a character, Miranda is rather charmless, and while she speaks the play's most famous line, oh, brave new world that has such people in it, it's disappointing that she's saying this about a man. Disappointing but not surprising, her entire role in this world is to attract men, stay chaste, and listen to her father. Prospero expects similar duty from Ariel and Caliban. Indeed, the three of them come across as Prospero's children, and while Ariel and Miranda give their obedience, Caliban does not, which is what makes his conflict with Prospero so intriguing. Now, comic villains often come with comic motivations. Recall how in The Merry Wives of Windsor, Ford is unreasonably jealous, and how in Cymbeline, Clawton is an arrogant fop. Now, Caliban is a comic villain because he is never truly a threat, and yet at the same time, he has a very real grudge. This island's mine. By Sycorax, my mother, which thou takest from me when thou camest first. Thou strokest me, and madest much of me, wouldst give me water with berries in it, and teach me how to name the bigger light, and how the less that burn by day and night, and then I love thee, and show thee all the qualities of thy, of the fresh springs, brine pits, barren place, and fertile. Cursed be I that did so, all the charms of sycorax, toads, beetles, Bats light on you, for I am all the subjects that you have, which first was mine own king. And here you sty me in this hard rock, whilst you do keep from me the rest of the island. Thou lying slave, whom stripes may move, not kindness I have used thee, filth as thou art with human care, and lodged thee in mine own cell, till thou didst seek to violate the honour of my child. <laughs> Oh, wouldst had been done. Thou didst prevent me. I had peopled else this isle with Caliban's. It's unfortunate that Shakespeare never gave us a scene between Caliban and Ariel, since they represent such polar philosophical opposites. Harold Bloom points out that Ariel never acts unless under orders from Prospero, so it's possible that Ariel might have let Caliban's revolution unfold if Prospero had forgotten to tell him not to. Neither Ariel or Caliban are fully human, and both have prickly relationships with their father figure. Ariel is obedient, but he's really happy about it. Shakespeare goes to pains to tell us that Ariel is acting under duress. As for Caliban, he only confronts Prospero once before the climactic fifth act, during which we have the unsettling notion that both have had their rightful place in the world taken by usurpers, and both have become cruel because of it. Like father, like son. The other characters in The Tempest are an immemorable lot. Few actors clamor to play Ferdinand or Trinculo. And what keeps The Tempest in our consciousness is the fact that A-list celebrities keep playing Prospero, and for some reason, they keep teaching the play in schools. Indeed, that's where I was first introduced to The Tempest, and I spent most of the semester wondering why we were wasting our time. Harold Bloom remarked that, quote, We hardly recognize The Tempest is a comedy whenever Prospero is on stage, end quote, but I'd argue that it's not much of a comedy even when Prospero is in the wings. Who emerges as the hero of the play without Prospero? Are we supposed to root for the drunkard Stefano and Trinculo? 
In any case, Bloom's remark clearly highlights the problematic nature of The Tempest. Like so many of Shakespeare's plays, it doesn't ever sit firmly in one style or genre. It's an uneven mix of comedy, drama, and spectacle, all of which revolve around a corrupted hero whose dramatic arc has him achieve a happy ending he may not completely deserve. The play certainly allows clever directors to show off well, how clever they are, but I remain unconvinced that the play is anything more than a magic show full of parlor tricks, illusion, and a certain beguiled wonder. Although, come to think of it, that's not such a bad thing to find in a night of the theater, so perhaps The Tempest isn't such a bad play after all. And now comes the part of the podcast where I talk about film versions of the play I've discussed. I'll start with my usual remark about the BBC version of this play. It is stodgy but faithful. But let's talk about how in 2010, visionary director Julie Taymor brought out her version of The Tempest, which had a very impressive cast. Alfred Molina, Russell Brand, Ben Wishaw, and Helen Mirren in the lead role. Her name naturally changed. Now, Tamer has a lot of fun with the visuals, employing various cinematic tricks to create a storm, magic spells, turning Ariel into a ghost-like sprite. The colonial implications of the story are brought to the forefront, what with Caliban being played by the Beninese actor Jimin Honsu. The film more or less stays true to the text, but it's an odd little movie with a lot of acting that might have worked on stage, but here tends to garble the words. Now, Tamor, you'll recall, did a film version of Titus Andronicus, and it's interesting that she chose two plays that are essentially the bookends of Shakespeare's career. Titus is the more visually stunning of her two movies, and in the end, I think I'll have to side with Richard Brody, who, writing for The New Yorker, said that while The Tempest was fine, it wasn't, quote, an artistically significant, end quote, interpretation of the play. Now, I'm not sure movie versions of Shakespeare's plays have to reinvent the wheel, but I'd agree that Tamer's approach is ultimately a ho-hum affair. Instead, I'm actually going to recommend another version from 2010, the recording of a performance from Canada's Stratford Festival starring Christopher Plummer. Plummer isn't afraid to play Prospero as a tyrant from the start, allowing us to see his transformation throughout the play. And the production even gives Miranda a little bit of fire, making her a much more modern girl. However, don't go watching this production expecting politics. It makes Caliban more of a fish monster, thanks to some impressive bits of costume and makeup. And it really plays up the fantastical aspects of the play, making it almost into a dark fairy tale somewhere along the lines of The Winter's Tale. However, it still remains a very enjoyable production to watch. And as always, I'll leave links to everything I've discussed on the show page. That's it for Shakespeare and Bard. Next up... We have lots more spectacle and pageantry. It's time for Henry VIII. For more information or to listen to all the episodes available in this series, please visit my website at www.joelfishbane.net. And hey, while you're there, why not figure out how to get your hands on a copy of my book, The Thunder of Giants. It's about two eight-foot-tall women who struggle to survive in a world much too small to contain them, and it's available from St. Martin's Press. Pick up your copy today, preferably at full price. Thanks for listening to Shakespeare and Bard. 36 plays down. Two to go. Will Shakespeare as a play? Let's go and cough through it.